This is Catholic Daily Brief. Episode 23. What did the early Christians think about Mary? Part 1. There are four principal teachings that we consider dogmas or articles of the faith regarding Mary. Those are that she is the mother of God, that she was a perpetual virgin, that she was immaculately conceived, that is, conceived without the stain of original sin, and that she was assumed body and soul into heaven. This first part of looking into what the early church thought of Mary will focus on Mary as the mother of God. It's first in the list because it's the highest of her privileges, the highest of her honors, the highest of her graces. All of the other three flow from her as mother of God. Because she was to be the mother of God, she was immaculately conceived because it was from her flesh, from her human nature, that Christ would take his human nature. It was because she would be the mother of God that she was perpetually a virgin, that is the new Ark of the Covenant, unstained, untouched by any other. And it was because she bore Christ and shared most closely in his redemptive action that she was also the first to share in the bodily resurrection. The reasons that we consider her the mother of God and that the early Christians considered her the mother of God are the same reasons that we believe Christ is true God and true man, that his human and divine natures were inseparably united in the second person of the Trinity from the moment of his conception. We talked about that in the episode, Christ fully God and fully man. So the scriptural evidence for Mary being the mother of God is pretty much the same as the scriptural evidence for Christ being true God and true man. If his two natures were inseparably united in the second person of the Trinity from the moment of his conception when he assumed our human nature, then Mary is considered the mother of God. And I'll explain that. But if you haven't listened to the episode, Jesus, fully God and fully man, I'd recommend that you go and do that for better context for this discussion. Aside from that scriptural evidence, that is the evidence that Christ is fully God and fully man, there are a couple unique scriptural references that point to Mary as the mother of God. Think of the beginning of Luke's gospel, chapter 1, verse 43, when Mary goes to meet Elizabeth, and Elizabeth greets her by saying, Who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So that seems to be a, a pretty clear statement on Mary as the mother of the Lord. But if you doubt that the word Lord there is being used to denote God, consider a really interesting parallel that was brought to the common awareness by Dr. Scott Hahn, I've mentioned him a couple of times already, and that is that this scene where Mary's greeting Elizabeth is in a way hearkening back to or pointing to Mary as the Ark, the new Ark of the Covenant. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 9, when the Ark of the Covenant is brought to David, it says, And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the Ark of the Lord come to me? And just as St. John the Baptist leapt for joy when he heard Mary's voice, King David danced before the ark in 2 Samuel 6, 14, just a few verses after he says, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? And Mary remained with Elizabeth for three months, it says in Luke 1, 56. And in, again, 2 Samuel chapter 6, it says the ark of the Lord remained in the house for three months. So that's pretty compelling evidence just by itself that Mary ought to be considered the mother of God, the mother of the Lord. But the main reason we hold that Mary is the mother of God, as I said, is because of what we believe about Christ. In fact, Mary was very early on defined as mother of God by an ecumenical council in the year 431, Council of Ephesus. 
And that definition, that dogmatic definition, was because of the long tradition of belief, but also because it indicated an orthodox, correct understanding of Christ. So how we speak about Mary indicates what we believe about Christ. The way we speak about Mary is kind of a touchstone of orthodoxy, or a sign that one has a proper belief in Christ's incarnation and how to speak about it properly. That Christ isn't two persons, separate persons, you know, a human person and a divine person, and he's not some mix of the two, but that from the very moment of the conception of Christ in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit, it was an inseparable union in a person, the divine person. And so for that reason, the one that Mary gave birth to, even though she only, of course, was the source of his human nature, his flesh, nevertheless, that individual was also the second person of the Trinity, was God. So of course, Mary's not giving birth to divine nature. That's absurd. She's a creature, and God has existed from all eternity. But one gives birth to persons and not natures. The one that Mary gave birth to, the person that Mary gave birth to, is the second person of the Trinity. To claim otherwise is to have some false understanding of the union of Christ's two natures in the person. Keep in mind what St. Paul said in his letter to the Colossians, chapter 2, verse 9, In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So this is the important truth about Christ that the Council Fathers and the Council of Ephesus and the early Christians were trying to preserve that if you say Mary is just the mother of Jesus and you only want to use that title, that implies that you think that there was no real union in the person when Christ became incarnate, that it was just some kind of loose, what they call a moral union. After Mary gave birth to the man Jesus, there was then some kind of union. And that's false. That's condemned by the church. That's not how we speak of Christ. In the episode I mentioned before, Jesus fully God and fully man, You'll remember that the Father said, what God did not assume, he did not redeem. So if he didn't really assume our human nature from the very beginning of human existence, that is, conception, then we were not redeemed. So Mary being called Mother of God is a very important thing, not just as a title of veneration, but again, as a way to truly understand Christ's incarnation. So according to the words of the Council of Ephesus in 431, we have to quote, Confess that God is truly Emmanuel, and that on this account the Holy Virgin is the Mother of God. For according to the flesh, she gave birth to the Word of God, become flesh by birth. End quote. So that's in the year 431. A definition of a council is the fruit of the long tradition, and a dogmatic definition means that it is contained in divine revelation, and we saw the reasons that it is in scripture. But also let's see it in the tradition of the early church leading up to the Council of Ephesus. So one of the fathers we've heard from a number of times already, St. Irenaeus. And again, not to repeat myself all the time about this, but Irenaeus was a disciple of St. Polycarp, who was a disciple of John the Apostle. Irenaeus, writing in 189, says, quote, The Virgin Mary, being obedient to his word, received from an angel the glad tidings that she would bear God, end quote. This term, bear God, Theotokos, is what in Greek, the Council of Ephesus said is the title of Mary, God-bearer that she really bore God, that she gave birth to God, that she was the mother of God. Hippolytus, writing in 2.17, To all generations, the prophets have pictured forth the grandest subjects for contemplation and for action. Thus, too, they preached of the advent of God and the flesh to the world, his advent by the spotless and God-bearing Mary in the way of birth and growth, end quote. There again, you have the term Theotokos, God-bearing. Cyril of Jerusalem, writing in 3.50, quote, The Father bears witness from heaven to his Son, 
the Holy Spirit bears witness, coming down bodily in the form of a dove. The Archangel Gabriel bears witness, bringing the good tidings to Mary. The Virgin Mother of God bears witness, end quote. St. Ephraim, quote, Though still a virgin, she carried a child in her womb, and the handmaiden work of his wisdom became the Mother of God, end quote. St. Athanasius, in the year 365, The Word begotten of the Father from on high, inexpressibly, inexplicably, incomprehensibly, and eternally, is he that is born in time here below of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God. Epiphanius, in 374, Being perfect at the side of the Father and incarnate among us, not in appearance but in truth, he, the Son, reshaped man to perfection in himself from Mary, the Mother of God, through the Holy Spirit. St. Ambrose, just a few years later, quote, The first thing which kindles ardor in learning is the greatness of the teacher. What is greater than the Mother of God? What more glorious than she whom glory itself chose? St. Jerome says, quote, Do not marvel at the novelty of the thing if a virgin gives birth to God. St. Cyril of Alexandria in the year 427, so this is just right before the Council of Ephesus, quote, I have been amazed that some are utterly in doubt as to whether or not the Holy Virgin is able to be called the Mother of God. For if our Lord Jesus Christ is God, how should the Holy Virgin who bore him not be the Mother of God? End quote. And just to conclude the quotations from the Fathers, even though there are many more, uh, the same St. Cyril gives a good explanation. He says, quote, This expression, however, the Word was made flesh, can mean nothing else but that he partook of flesh and blood like to us. He made our body his own and came forth man from a woman, not casting off his existence as God or his generation of God the Father, but even in taking to himself flesh remaining what he was. This the declaration of the correct faith proclaims everywhere. This was the sentiment of the Holy Fathers. Therefore they ventured to call the Holy Virgin the Mother of God not as if the nature of the Word or His divinity had its beginning from the Holy Virgin, but because of her was born that holy body with a rational soul to which the Word, being personally united, is said to be born according to the flesh." So the Fathers present a heavy weight of testimony that was present even from apostolic times up until, of course, the time where it was dogmatically defined by the Council of Ephesus in response to certain errors that uh, were being preached. So just as in honoring Mary, we really honor her son, in the same way, in speaking of Mary as mother of God, we are really expressing a truth about Christ as well. One of the oldest known prayers to Mary is called the Subtuum Presidium. It was found in Egypt, and it goes back to around the year 250. And the prayer translated is, We fly to thy protection, O holy mother of God. Do not despise our petitions and our necessities, but deliver us always from all dangers, O glorious and blessed Virgin. So in that prayer, you have not just Mary being called Mother of God, but also a pretty developed Marian theology that sounds pretty recent, even though it comes from 250. We ask for her protection. She's not just the Mother of God, but she intercedes for us. She takes our petitions, says, Do not despise our petitions and our necessities, but deliver us always from all dangers, O glorious and blessed Virgin. So she's in glory. Right? She's glorious and she's virgin. All of these things uh, will flesh out a little bit more in the other parts, which will deal with the other Marian dogmas, her glorious assumption, her immaculate conception, and her perpetual virginity. Thank you for listening to Catholic Daily Brief. Please consider supporting this podcast by becoming a member at my Patreon, patreon.com slash catholicdailybrief. Also follow on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and give a five-star rating and a good review. God bless.